my funny valentine sweet comic valentine valentine's day is the time of year when you tell your loved ones or intended loved ones how you feel and there's no better way to accompany your sentiments than with the traditional gifts of flowers chocolate and wine i'm sarah mcconnell and today on with good reason the gifts of love Later in the show, we'll meet a theoretical physicist who uses science to create chocolate treats, and a floral designer who says this Valentine's Day, look beyond the roses. But first, wine and chocolate are natural partners. It's a traditional way to woo your beloved, sipping on a nice glass of Chardonnay or Merlot while eating chocolates out of that heart-shaped box. But which wine to best pair with the chocolate? Andrew Hudson is the owner of Veritas Vineyards, which produces 20,000 cases a year. He also teaches a course on all things wine at Piedmont Virginia Community College. With good reason, producer Elliot Majerzik sat down with Andrew to talk about wine. Andrew, how and why did you decide to become a winemaker? Now, I talked to you before the interview, and I could detect a British accent. Yes, that's correct. And England is not known, and I hope I don't offend a lot of people, for right. fine wines. So what is the trajectory? How did well, the trajectory there is the fact that I came over to the United States way back in 1975 on an exchange fellowship. I was at that time practicing medicine. And uh, in the year 2000, my wife and I both decided that we wanted to do something else. And we bought a little farm in Afton, Virginia. And we have planted a total of roughly 60 acres of vines and created what we call Veritas Winery. Did you teach yourself the art of winemaking? Yes, I did. I used as much as I could other people's expertise. You know, the definition of a smart person is one who surrounds himself with smarter people. So I was able to do that with both with vineyard and with winemaking. Did you have a bad year? Oh, yes. Funny thing was, when we started in the first two years, 2000 to 2002, there was a horrendous drought. The drought was so bad that in the restaurants in Charlottesville, you, they would serve you on plastic silverware and paper plates because they couldn't afford to wash them. And of course, if you're a grape grower or a wine grower, drought is a good thing. The first two years we made wine, they were hugely concentrated and they were beautiful. And I thought, well, I really have chosen the right thing to do here. And then came 2003. And in 2003, it was twice the normal rainfall. We had a horrendous harvest. Nothing got ripe. <laughs> so I was brought back to earth quite rapidly. So drought forces the grapes to get riper and to get more sugar, more dehydrated, increases the intensity of flavors of the wines. Tough life. Yeah. leads to a sweet grape. <laughs> Unlike most agricultural people, we delight in drought. Let's talk about wines in general. What do you look for in a wine beyond what you like in a wine? Right. It's a good question, actually, Elliot. And I look for a number of factors, the most important of which is balance. A wine must be balanced in the sense that 
no one flavor should overwhelm another flavor. I like to use the analogy of music and wine. Listening to good music, no one instrument should overpower the other instruments. And when you've got a balanced wine, everyone has got their own voice. And you can tell that the wine has got a good balance. That's one of the primary features in a good wine. I'm not a connoisseur, so I look at the label. And often, if the label is in very bad taste, yes. I think the wine is in bad taste. And I read the little blurb on the back, and if they have the word minerally on it, I put it back on the shelf. So how important <laughs> is the label? Well, the label is no more than a real sort of indicator as to the nature of the wine you're going to buy. It's not in any way black and white. It, it helps you understand. The more background knowledge you have, the more the label is helpful. They just are indicators, no more than an indicator. Another myth of wine or something I'd like to be cleared up is a $40 bottle of wine, always better than a 12 or $15 bottle of wine. That's not true. One can find $12 bottles of wine that are as good, if not better, than a $40 bottle of wine. And there are some $40 bottles of wine that are sold at $40 on the premise that because they cost $40, they've got to be good. But there are many that are not so. Let's talk about wine in 2018, this year, uh, with climate change and the fires in California. How, how has that affected the American wine market? Well, the climate change is a huge phenomenon and is affecting wine growers throughout the world, not only in America. As a result of the increase in warmth, the wines are going to be richer, higher alcohol, higher sugars. Regions that previously made concentrated sweet wines, they're now too hot to make those wines. Really? Yes. The reason why the English can make sparkling wine is because of climate change. The climate's changed to the point that they can grow grapes in Britain, whereas before it was too far north and they were unable to ripen any grape. We're going to have wines in Greenland soon or Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing in 2018 is if you open the newspapers, we're all told the economy is doing incredibly well and people have more disposable income. That's great. How is that affecting the wine industry? It's a good thing. The wine market is bullish and probably for that reason that there's more disposable income, discretionary income, whatever you like to call it. My only caution is that although the multinational corporations are doing incredibly well and all the stock markets are up, uh, it doesn't necessarily trickle down to the common man. Well, Valentine's Day is coming up, and so I have a question about Valentine's Day, which I'm sure a lot of people have. What do you recommend in terms of buying wine if you have no idea mm -hmm. what your intended wine <laughs> gifty person yeah. likes? I think the, the safest thing is to buy a wine that is sweet. By and large, the gifts of Valentine's are either flowers or chocolates. The most important factor in the tasting of and the appreciation of chocolate is sweetness. When you pour a wine, you pour a sweeter wine than the dessert. So to be perfectly safe, if you're buying wine for your Valentine, it's best to buy a sweet wine. Let's pair some wine and chocolate. And I just don't want to be the only person tasting along with you, so I've invited my colleague, Kelly Libby. Hi. Hello, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kelly, 
nobody told you this job was going to be so difficult when you started <laughs> that you're going to have to be drinking wine and chocolate. It's really onerous <laughs> part of work. Awful. Awful. So, Andrew, what do you have for us? What's the first? Well, I, I brought three wines, the two sweet wines. One is a Madeira and the other one is a Port, uh, both, of course, from Portugal. The non-sweet wine is actually from Chile. I see you've bought milk chocolate and bittersweet chocolate. That's right. What would you like to start with? Well, I'd like to start with a bittersweet. The red wine has tannins, which have a natural bitterness and a natural sort of uh, roughness to them. So the bitter chocolate matches the bitter tannins in the red wine. So it makes a very good pairing. I'd like to start with the dry wine first, only because once you've consumed sweet wine, your palate is contaminated. I don't mean contaminated, you know, but it's, it's, your palate has been changed. This may be the only wine and chocolate I'll get this Valentine's Day. <laughs> so I'm thrilled for it. Now I see that you're letting the red wine swish around. Yes, which is, and that aromatizes the flavors. And letting some oxygen in. So we take a bite of chocolate. Yep. The proper protocol is to drink the wine, yes. have the chocolate, yes. and then drink some more wine. So we, we taste the wine and think about the wine. So you appreciate the wine. Then we take a little tiny bit of chocolate and see how the chocolate influences the taste of the wine. Kelly, if you were to receive this as a Valentine gift. I'd be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> and the bitter chocolate goes best with the dry wine. The milk chocolate is a lot sweeter. will go better with the, either the port or the Madeira. And so you said it's a sweet wine. Does that mean it's an after-dinner wine? It's not necessarily. Some people will drink this as an aperitif. So they'll put ice and pour Madeira on ice cubes and drink it as an aperitif. By and large, it's a dessert wine. Hmm. Um, I drink Madeira. The only time I, I drink Madeira is at Thanksgiving. At the end of the meal, and we're all sitting back by the fire, we enjoy a glass of Madeira. So again... Let's taste the wine. Taste the wine. Oh. As they say, it's like butter. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sweet. Yeah. I think I like it more than port. Yeah, it's got it's got more caramel. There's sort of a caramelly toffee um, characteristics, which are really very charming, and a degree of acidity. And the acidity balances the sweetness, because if you drink something that's just particularly sweet with no acid, you get this phenomenon of cloying. It's sickly sweet. Right. Yeah. If you add the acid, it brightens it, and it, the acid balances the sweetness. Mm -hmm. And this is what one finds in in a Madeira particularly. Yeah, I can almost feel that acid sort of in my mouth, mm -hmm. um, and I, I can see how without it, I would feel a little yeah, it's sick. A little aftertaste in the acid. It's very uh, pronounced. Here goes the chocolate. Okay. English Cadbury chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I only brought you the best. <laughs> <laughs> and now we chase it with... Madeira. Madeira. We may never get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I notice when we're drinking this, it's the same phenomenon when you're eating a great meal. You mm -hmm. suddenly get very silent <laughs> because you're just enjoying it. Right. I could spend a couple of days like this. <laughs> the port will be much more fruit-driven, okay? So you get lots of dark fruit. You get things like raisins and plums and... 
um, dried fruit. Dried fruit. Whereas with the with the Madeira, you get much more in the way of malt and, and toffee and sugar. Yes, this is completely different than the Madeira. Yes. It, it does taste like, as you said, dried cherries, yes. dried... Yes. Dried plums, actually prunes, <laughs> which is a dried plum, of course. I would say that this port is not that much of a dessert wine. I could see drinking this with some food, a tart or some cookies. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily chocolate. Chocolate brownies. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's have some of this chocolate now. Mm. Oh. Based on our tasting. That's my favorite. Is it? Okay, I was going to say I was going to say Madeira was my favorite. I find this a really nice balance between the sweet, the sweet of the chocolate, and the sort of dried fruit, mm-hmm. raisins, sultanas, all those lovely dried fruits. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. This is inspirational. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You've just made my Valentine's very easy because now I know exactly what I'm going to give my wife. I don't even have to think about it anymore. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. It was a real treat. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. And happy Valentine's Day to us all. To one one and all. Hudson is the owner of Veritas Vineyards and teaches a course on wine at Piedmont Virginia Community College. Coming up, the scientific approach to making chocolate. Joshua Ehrlich is a theoretical physicist at the College of William and Mary. He spends his days pondering dark matter. Along with the universe, the other dark matter he explores is the science of making chocolate. Associate producer John Last visited his chocolate-making lab at William & Mary. When I arrive at William & Mary's small hall, there's a lingering smell of chocolate in the air. Josh Erlach is bustling around like an alchemist. He talks fast about chocolate because there's a lot to cover. So there are two cardinal rules when working with chocolate. Uh, The first is don't rush. That's the rule that I broke. Erlach is a theoretical physicist, but after happening upon a website a few years ago called chocolatealchemy.com, he became an artisan chocolatier, a man as expert in the mysteries of dark chocolate as he is in the properties of dark matter. So the basic ingredients in chocolate, well, it's one part art, one part science, two parts love. Chocolate Alchemy, the website, is the work of a former chemist named John Nancy. In a series of blog posts, he described how to take a process that is normally done with industrial equipment at a massive scale and do it in a home kitchen. Now in front of me, Erlach has laid out all the steps in Nancy's process, beginning with the humble cocoa bean. There's a combination of cocoa solids and cocoa butter. Uh, They're both contained inside cocoa beans. And you can crack them open, and inside you'll find cocoa nibs. There are different kinds of beans, from the common Forastero to the exotic white-colored Porcelana. Each provides a slightly different flavor. The cocoa butter is what's responsible for the structural qualities of chocolate, its perfect meltiness, its smooth texture. 
The solids, meanwhile, provide chocolate with its bitter, rich taste. Erlach roasts the nibs in the oven, then takes them on to the first of several pieces of hardware. We have a juicer. And this is no ordinary juicer. Uh, What this will do is take roasted cocoa nibs uh, and convert them into a chocolate liquor. They're flying everywhere. <laughs> it smells uh, It smells really good. Fruity almost. A little fruity, that's right. It's not alcohol we're making, but a thick brown paste that's the base of all chocolates. And uh, let's not tell anyone what that looks like. Ooh. <laughs> that, it's not the most appetizing looking stage of not chocolate. Not at this stage, so that's why we don't feed this to people. Uh, it will also taste very bitter. Once we have the paste, Erlach needs to mix in some sugar. But you won't be able to do this with a spoon. Uh, The tongue's very sensitive, so if the particles get down below about 20 microns, then you have nice, smooth-feeling chocolate. 20 microns is less than a third the width of a human hair. So Erlach needs some serious equipment for grinding the sugar into the paste. In one of the great moments of human ingenuity, it was John Nancy who first discovered that an Indian food processor, typically used for crushing lentils, could do the same job for mixing sugar into chocolate liquor. It looks like a food processor, but in place of the blades are two gigantic granite wheels. The granite wheels uh, just roll around and around, uh, typically for you know, 14 hours. During this time, Erlach tells me, heat caused by friction cooks the raw cocoa liquor and helps cut the bitterness of the mix. At a certain point, Erlach mixes in a grainy yellow substance. This is soy lecthin. It makes the chocolate a little less viscous. It makes it easier to work with uh, in the final stages when it's poured into a mold. At the end of this whole process, you have molten liquid chocolate. But Josh tells me, actually, that was the easy part. And now is where the real science and the art come together. So if you ever tried to melt a chocolate bar and then maybe pour it into a mold and and see if you could get a nice chocolate uh, out of that, that's actually quite difficult. It won't work so well. And the reason is that there are six different crystal structures of the cocoa butter inside the chocolate. Cocoa butter is made up of fat compounds called triglycerides that stack themselves into different shapes. After about 94 degrees, most of these compounds are just flowing about in an ooze. But as they cool, they can take on a number of different crystalline forms. The goal is to make type 5 chocolate crystals. The type 5 chocolate will typically melt at about 94 degrees Fahrenheit, which is just below your body's temperature. But outside, your hands will typically not be on the exterior 94 degrees. Uh, So you can hold a piece of chocolate for a good while if it's good chocolate and not have it melt. And uh, the way to do that is science. Erlach knows that type 5 crystals form between 80 and 94 degrees. Right now, the chocolate is sitting on a hot plate at a toasty 98 too hot for type 5 crystals. You could heat it up a little bit more because what we're going to do is make a seed crystal for the chocolate. To make this so-called seed, Erlach takes the chocolate off of the heat and pours a little bit of it out on a cool marble surface, spreading it back and forth with a spatula. The idea is to cool the molten chocolate to the point that type 5 crystals begin to form. When he thinks it's reached about 80 degrees, he scoops it up and tosses it back in the pot with the rest of the cooling chocolate. 
This is where it's as much art as science. The process is never the same twice. The chocolate he spread over the marble should have formed the type 5 crystals he's after. When it's put back in with the rest of the batch, those crystals will form bonds with the formless chocolate around it as it cools, turning the whole mixture into a shiny, perfectly formed crystalline structure. Erlach pours it into a mold to set, and voila, that's science. He gives me a piece of chocolate to try from a batch he made earlier with a touch of hazelnut. Mmm. It's very good. It tastes delicious. It's half sweet and smooth, even buttery. There's a hint of bitterness from the cocoa and a subtle round flavor from the hazelnut. Yeah, I think chocolate, it's just a nice sensual experience. Uh, putting a small piece of chocolate on your tongue, letting it melt. Uh, it, there's just something very appealing about that. Joshua Ehrlich is a professor of physics at the College of William and Mary. Coming up, thinking beyond the roses. Red roses are traditional gifts for loved ones on Valentine's Day, but it may be time to break with tradition. David Pippin is an instructor of floral design at J. Sargent Reynolds Community College. He says skip the roses this year. I asked him what his favorite flower is. Personally, (laughs) anything but roses on Valentine's Day. After working in the floral business for so many years, I've found that rose quality is down and price is up because of that whole supply and demand thing. So I look to other flowers uh, at Valentine's Day instead of roses. But don't we feel we have to send roses a good deal of time? Aren't roses symbolic of making a statement when you're in courtship or apology mode? (laughs) (laughs) I think traditionally, but I tell people all the time, if you're giving the flowers whatever you say when you give them or whatever is written on the card when you give them, that's what it's all about. I worked in a retail shop one time and... Our special for Valentine's Day was purple and yellow <laughs> to try and get people away from the red rose. And believe it or not, it was a big hit. And we tried to convince people, too, to do a, a garden-type arrangement with a few roses instead of just a dozen roses. You know, you spend the same amount of money and you get more flowers and more interesting flowers than just roses. I'd rather have something a little more unique. Huh. In terms not just of the flowers themselves, but the arrangement and even the artsy container. What kinds of containers have you seen that have really pleased you? Oh, I I love local pottery. Um, I've found some at several galleries. I've found things at farmer's markets, uh, very unusual things, one-of-a-kind containers. I also like to go to thrift stores and antique stores to find interesting old containers. Uh, And I like to use things that are not typically made for flowers. If we would like to sort of try one thing that you might suggest to us, Go home, find a container, and put certain textures and flowers together. What might it be? When you buy those mixed bouquets that look like they're prearranged, but they're just cut flowers wrapped in tissue or wrapped in cellophane, when you get home, cut the stems and cut them for the appropriate length for your container. So many times I've seen people take those home, take the wrapping off, put water in the vase and just drop them in. <laughs> yeah. And they're the people that I've nicknamed plunkers. But they just plunk, <laughs> plunk the flowers in the vase. So don't be a plunker. Uh, a good tip is to put greenery in the vase first. 
That'll act as a holder for your flowers and then start putting your flowers in and don't let your flowers be too tall. You need to be in uh, proportion to your vase. Typically one and a half to two times the height of the vase is tall enough. Uh, and But don't be too short either because I've seen people cut them off and then all the flower heads are resting on the edge of the vase. So you want to be somewhere in between. Let's say I want to do something besides just buy a bouquet from the grocery store. How might I create my own or an arrangement at home? Uh, Look for things in the yard that you can cut and use, whether it's bare branches, interesting foliage. I go walking through the woods to see what I can find, an interesting vine that may or may not have leaves on it, and put those in a container and then... Maybe go by the florist or the grocery store or wherever you buy your flowers and add those to the, the garden elements, and it makes it very different, and it doesn't look like it came from a florist at that point, even if the flowers came from there. Here's something I, I did recently. I went out and found a wisteria vine. We have lots of wisteria in my neighborhood. And I used a container with floral foam, inserted one end of the wisteria, and just sort of twisted it and let it fall naturally across the container, and then inserted the other end back into the foam. So it created this sort of loose rope-like effect across the foam. Some of it was coming up in the air. Some was laying flat on the foam. And then I started to work in my flowers around that. I used some magnolia um, because that large glossy leaf, a very interesting texture there. Um, And then I used some hydrangea, tiny flowers, but all massed together. And several of those tucked in very short and very tight and then some uh, wispier flowers out beyond that. Uh, things like lisianthus or freesia work really well because they have skinny little stems with interesting little buds that can come up into the air. One of my favorite things that I've incorporated and I've used in that arrangement was ornamental cabbage. I used white because I was doing sort of an all-white arrangement with that. And then I worked some Granny Smith apples in there, just inserted a skewer into those and then cut it short and tuck those down right against the foam, a little bit of moss to fill in the open spaces, and it was beautiful, all green and white with some natural vines going through, so lots of fun. Are there ways to present some of the less expensive flowers and make them sort of stand out also? (laughs) Oh, yeah. One of my favorite tricks is to use carnations and cut them very, very short, tuck them in right against the floral foam. And then have some more expensive, interesting flowers come out beyond the carnations. And the carnations become background and color. And they are not a featured flower. And they work beautifully for that. What if you have found the flowers that you love and you'd like them to last a little bit longer in the arrangement? Any tips? Yes. When the florist gives you that little package of flower food, by all means, open it, dissolve it in your vase in the warm water, and... Give your flowers a good fresh cut with a sharp knife or sharp clippers and put them in there. Um, That really does help. David, before I let you go, do you have a favorite flower yourself? Hard to answer, but I think hydrangeas are probably my favorite because there's so many varieties of them. We can grow them in our gardens. Later in the season, we can cut them and they last. They even dry. Um, And we can buy them in the florist year-round as a plant and as a cut flower. Days of wine and roses Laugh and run away Like a child at play 
Pippin teaches floral design at J. Sargent Reynolds Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. There's a tear in my beer Cause I'm crying for you, dear You are on my lonely mind Breakups and divorces have inspired some of the most recognizable songs, poems, and plays throughout history, and some of the most epic benders. But how likely is it that a bad breakup will push a person to full-fledged alcoholism? I'm gonna keep drinking until I'm petrified And then maybe these tears will leave my eyes There's a tear in my beard cause I'm crying My first guest is Jessica Salvatore, a psychologist at Virginia Commonwealth University. Jessica studies the relationship between, well, relationships and addiction. She also teaches a course called Love and Drugs, the science behind media portrayals of romance and substances of abuse. Jessica, you have taught a course on how movies and songs are portraying romance and substance abuse. Where'd you get the idea? Actually, during a a long-haul flight that I had taken, and so this was a 14-hour flight. I had plenty of time to sort of zone out and and watch movies. And I was really struck by the selections that, you know, Delta had on this particular flight, (laughs) because a lot of them really seemed to focus on relationships and substance use. I realized that there was a lot of portrayals of this topic, but that there was also a science behind it. Do you remember which movies you saw or did one stand out? Yeah, so the one that actually really stuck out in my mind was the movie How to Be Single with Dakota Johnson. It's this portrayal of these young women in New York City, one of whom has recently gone through a breakup with a long-term boyfriend, and how her coworker Dakota, is helping her get over that through lots of, you know, crazy partying and hooking up with random strangers. So here's a clip from the movie How to Be Single. Let's listen to that. I know breaking up sucks, but you know what's even worse? Wasting a night in New York City. Give it to me, I'm Let me teach you how to be single. Okay. Lesson one, go get us some drinks. Okay. And what does it say to you? Does it say we're sending the wrong message to kids or that this is how love and depression over a breakup work? I mean, I think that it is reflecting in part what people expect and probably to some extent what people do experience themselves. I mean, we do know from the science that when someone goes through a breakup or a divorce, this is a risk period for the onset of, for example, heavier drinking or drug use. But my goal in in teaching this course was not so much to tell students what was right or wrong about these portrayals, but to help them really explore those ideas themselves and to know that there was a science behind them and that, in fact, they could do their own fact-checking of these portrayals to see if they're true. Let's look a little bit at some of the science behind love and addiction 
Does the science of what we're feeling when we're in love show that it's true that love is as addictive as a drug? It turns out that, you know, when we look at a picture of the person we love, that this sort of lights up the same structures in the brain that are lit up when we use a substance of abuse. There is this shared neurobiological structure that is activated when someone feels intensely in love and when someone uses drugs. Really, the simple story here is that drugs of abuse, we know, operate on the mesocortical limbic pathway in the brain. And this is the same pathway that's activated in the context of natural rewards, so food, sex, social interaction. And so this system, this neurobiological system that is evolutionarily made to respond to natural rewards gets hijacked in the context of addiction. You've also been studying the impact of romantic relationships on substance abuse. What do you find there? Yeah, so one example of this line of work comes from this ongoing longitudinal study of college students that we have going on at Virginia Commonwealth University. And what we found is that individuals who report dating several partners at a time, that they tend to also be at increased risk for high levels of alcohol use. They tend to have a higher likelihood of having a parent with an alcohol use disorder. And they also tend to have behavioral patterns and personality traits that make them more prone to form an addiction themselves. One movie that I think most clearly illustrates some of the links between substance use and relationship functioning and outcomes is the movie Smashed. Right. And in this movie, it's a young married couple, and after a couple of scary incidents, the, the woman, the wife, she decides to go to AA meetings and get sober. One of the things that makes it really difficult for her to get and you know stay sober is that her husband has made it very clear that he is not interested in, in stopping his drinking. And so there's this one really poignant part of the movie where they get into a fight and she's screaming at him, crying, saying, you know, I can't be sober with you. And I think this really captures the idea that in a relationship, what is destabilizing and dissatisfying is not so much how much I'm drinking or how much my husband, for example, is drinking. It's how much we're drinking in relation to one another. So in this particular movie, the woman was trying to maintain her sobriety, but it was really difficult given that her husband continued drinking heavily. They do end up getting a divorce. And I think this, again, illustrates this idea that what's destabilizing is not heavy drinking in itself, but heavy drinking with respect to a partner's drinking. You know, our partners shape our behavior in really important ways. So finding partners who are going to help us, you know, reach our full potential as opposed to a partner who's going to um, be a bad influence, for lack of a better word, on us is, is really important and has potentially long-term effects. You basically have another set of hands and eyes <laughs> and ears that are keeping track of, of your behavior. When you and your students were looking at popular films and popular songs, did you find that most of the popular films and songs depicted love 
sadness and breakup in a way that was relatively true to life, or do they sort of defy what we really know? I think for many of the media portrayals that my students had selected, where, you know, love, for example, is being compared to feeling high or drunk, that there is good evidence for those things in terms of there being a scientific backing. I'm curious whether you learned anything from them, you know, gained any insights into how they think from some of their responses in class? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really took away from this course was that the landscape of what romantic relationships are in the early adulthood period is changing and has changed a lot just in the past few years. So when you think about, you know, new online dating applications and just the different modes that people meet partners through, they feel overwhelmed in terms of the number of choices that they have, as well as the fact that because there are so many potential partners out there, it kind of makes it hard to choose any one of them. And one of the other things that, you know, they mentioned in the context of that is that oftentimes to sort of, um, you know, facilitate a, a first meeting with someone that they've met online, where do you go? You go to the bar, you get, you get some drinks. So there's also a, a pretty tight link between substance use and, um, you know, the different ways that people are, are meeting partners now that could have implications for understanding how relationships in this day and age and substance use are are related. You know, those kinds of dating applications, Tinder, Bumble, uh, Coffee Meets Bagel, and this is a totally new era for relationships and substance use. Right. And 10 years hence, what it means in terms of stable pairings. Yeah. I mean, we do know that the age at first marriage is increasing and has been increasing over time for the past several decades. I know that some people have questioned whether even marriage is sort of a relevant relationship context to be studying substance use. I think one of the other areas of this literature that is really unexplored are relationships outside of sort of heterosexual relationships in European American individuals. There hasn't been historically a lot of diversity reflected in this literature, and I think we really need to to address that. So, you know, one question that a student of mine had for me was, you know, he said, I am a, a non-gender conforming student, and you're standing up in front of me talking about white married couples. Like, what does that have to do with me? Or what yeah. What should I learn that is impacting my life as, you know, uh, a person of African-American background who is non-gender conforming and has a non-heterosexual relationship? His point was well taken. That literature on non-heterosexual relationships is mostly focused, for example, on HIV risk. It's very much a risk perspective as opposed to sort of a health-promoting perspective. What do you think you came away understanding from your students about modern love and modern pairings? I mean, what I took away from it was that the students feel like today there's a lot of sort of... um, superficial presentation that 
potential partners are making on their social media accounts, sort of um, peacock feathers, I guess, for lack of a better word, and that they didn't feel like they were able to make as sort of meaningful social connections with potential partners because it feels like there's always something better out there because there literally probably will be because there's sort of an endless supply of potential partners their age on these dating apps. And I think they found that kind of discouraging. That's so interesting. It's as though this idea of small screen size and being overwhelmed by video product has entered the dating realm. Oh, yeah. They definitely felt overwhelmed. And they felt like a lot of the relationships that they were able to form were really superficial. Back to basics, right? Face to face. (laughs) Exactly. Match.com harmony. Plenty of fish out in the sea. I'm always fooled by a pleasant smile. Jessica Salvatore teaches psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. My hopes high, longing for that perfect guy. Seems each time it's crash and burn. You'd think by now I would have learned. With good reason, intern Peter Eckel decided to ask some people about their thoughts on dating apps and online dating sites. In 2015, author and journalist Nancy Jo Sales documented what she termed the dating apocalypse. In her view, the internet and online dating apps have replaced real-world ways of meeting new people. She argued that having thousands of potential mates at her fingertips may be more of a problem than a solution. How have dating apps changed the way we date? I don't think that it has, like, fundamentally changed. Like, nobody's looking for things in real life anymore, because that's not true. People are still looking for things in real life. I made Tinder just for fun, you know? But I would actually want to meet the person, start talking to them in person, you get me? Like, without no dating apps or nothing like that, you know, let it happen naturally. But it's a good way to meet people, too. It doesn't always have to be, like, a relationship or, like, love forever or anything like that. I don't even know anybody that's never, like, at least tried it as, like, a joke and then been like, oh, it actually works. Like, this guy's pretty cool or this girl's really, like, you know. There's no guessing game involved. Like, when you meet someone at a party and you exchange numbers, there's still, like, this thing in the back of your mind being like, do they know I'm interested? Versus online dating, like, it's it's understood. That's what you're there for. I don't believe in online dating, but there are a lot of people that do it, so I don't say, like, it's absolutely a bad thing. It's helping singles to find their love of their life. I'm definitely the kind of person that thinks, like, you'll find that person, you'll bump into them in a coffee shop, like, you'll be like, wow, that's my favorite book you're reading, like, let's talk about it. Online dating is just part of good economics, diversification of your dating life. You should get a profile, but it's not the only thing you should do. You should meet people in bars or at parties, but it's not the only place you should look for a partner. You should try it all. You know, if you're bored, you're feeling a little lonely, need a ego boost, I'd recommend it. Um, if you're looking for love, I'd say get out of your apartment and go do something. Get off your phone. up next, can marriages and stable relationships fend off alcoholism? My next guest is Kenneth Kendler, a psychiatrist at Virginia Commonwealth University. 
Kenneth studies the genetics of psychiatric and substance abuse disorders, and he joins me now to talk about what to look for when someone with a genetic predisposition to alcohol abuse might be slipping into addiction after a divorce. Kenneth, your research shows men and women who divorce are at greater risk for developing an alcohol problem after divorce. Is the risk high? Yep. The increase is really substantial. So if you got divorced, your risk for alcoholism increased about sixfold. What sorts of alcohol abuse are we talking about? Out-and-out alcoholism or more drinks per night? Uh, Pretty much out-and-out alcoholism. The way that we measured this was people who presented to their doctors and hospitals with alcohol-related problems. Might be liver disease, might be stomach problems, or might be somebody in alcohol withdrawal or people who had repeated DUIs and other alcohol-related criminal problems. So if people remarried after divorce, did that bring the alcohol abuse back down again? It sure did. And another pretty interesting thing we looked at is what, what is another example in human populations of the loss of a spouse that probably has really different risk factors than divorce does, and that's widowhood. And we had enough cases here where the spouse died to see whether there was also an increased risk of alcoholism in those cases, and there was. So what is it, do you think, about marriage that helps protect people against alcohol abuse during marriage? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we learn is that if you're married to a person who themselves has alcohol problems, it's no longer protective. In fact, it's a little bit predisposing. So it's not only the factor of being married. We do know that spouses tend to drink together and influence one another. Spouses also have this thing in kind of watching out for each other's health, whether someone's overeating or eating too many eggs or not exercising enough or whether they're going to the doctor. And it's probably that kind of pattern of spouses looking after one another that plays the role here. That's the protective effect of drinking. I had initially thought when we started the study, since there's quite a bit of evidence that women on average tend to civilize men more than the other way around, that this protective effect of marriage would actually be greater for husbands than for wives. But that's not true. Actually, slightly greater for the wives. For women, could it not be because they had children and they're setting an example? Yes, it could be. And we are in the process now of studying that kind of question. That is, how much does having young children reduce risk? We've got a really interesting group of people in Sweden who are married twice and once being married to a person who does not have alcohol problems and the second time married to someone who is, or the other way around, to show quite convincingly that the risk, if you go from a spouse who doesn't have alcohol problems to one that does, you have a substantial increase in your risk for alcoholism. And if it's the other way around, your risk goes down. Are there particular periods where people are most likely to slide into alcohol abuse? What can we look for if we have loved ones going through this? What we see when we look at the timing is a small increase that occurs starting a couple of years prior to the divorce. And then it peaks at a big increased risk in the year of the divorce and then goes down a little bit and stays constant over five or ten years. You'd, you'd be particularly worried in the months after the divorce when the person is living on their own. Often there's a reactive depression that arises in the setting of divorce. There's often conflict Uh, Friends begin to divide up. 
So if you were following someone at that time point, you'd want to be checking on them in those first months. It's probably the most vulnerable period. What do you think you learned in an, in an understanding about human nature and human proclivities from your work in this regard? There's a strong tendency now in the field of psychiatry to emphasize the biological causes of drug abuse problems. We know that there are important changes in the brain, that your pleasure pathways get rewired to the drug of addiction. What I learned most importantly from this study is that these social and psychological factors are also important. Drug and alcohol abuse is a complex feature of we human beings, and we ourselves are very complex. We have brains, and our brains are run by chemicals, and we have pathways and reward pathways that are important, but we also respond deeply to our love relationships and the people who care about us, and drug abuse is not simply one or the other. It's not just a psychological or social problem. It's not just weakness of will or a deficiency of character, but it's not just my brain getting rewired. It's this complex interchange between the two. I feel like there's some people who are just more risk-taking than others, and that can be advantageous. But somebody who would just as soon down an entire pint of ice cream or binge-watch Game of Thrones right, <laughs> might also be the person who would resort to alcohol more freely. You're right. There's a general tendency, we call it risk-taking or novelty-seeking or sensation-seeking, that is, does increase the risk for alcoholism and for a range of other experimental procedures. But it's not very specific, and lots of people are able to recast that tendency to become skydivers or to become special agents in the Army or you know, people who either take risks in more healthy situations. We're also using twin and adoption studies to understand the role of genes, which are pretty strong. About half of your overall risk in a population for something like alcoholism comes from your genes. And the ultimate part of the story of this research is putting those two halves together. Was this the first large-scale study of alcoholism following divorce, or have there been others? Uh, this is the first of this magnitude with the, particularly the ability to match these pairs of relatives to give more insight into what's causing what. No, the, the subject about the relationship of marital problems to alcohol, it's a large literature, been studied many times before. And people who have studied this before will be most interested in what aspect? Oh, I think our ability to suggest that these, this association is likely a causal one, that it's not just the kind of people who get divorced are the kind of people who might be more prone to alcoholism, but it's actually the divorce itself. So marriage is truly protective. It's a true causal effect. And divorce itself really increases the risk. So you can count on that when you're trying to take information from this and move it to the intervention realm. Well, Kenneth Kendler, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Kenneth Kendler directs the Psychiatric Genetics Research Program at Virginia Commonwealth University. Next week on With Good Reason, Driving While Black, Tragic Outcomes During Traffic Stops Between Police and African Americans. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quance is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzyk is our producer. 
Kelly Libby is our associate producer, and Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>